our reading comes from Revelation 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside of the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky and that no rain may fall during the days they're prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven, saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed, and behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Well, again, good morning. Thank you. I'm having those, one of those moments where another illustration uh, is coming to mind. I'm like, should I really use that one? Um, but I think I'm going to stick with my uh, opening illustration that I had. And it's simply this. I was uh, in Kroger this week. Anybody been in Kroger this week for anything? Um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go in. I'm just going to get a few things. You know how this goes. I don't need a basket. I don't even need the little handheld thing. And then you get an aisle or two in, and what happens? You're like, ah, I kind of need a basket. And there's a basket sitting there. And you're like, oh, how nice. Nobody's around it. It's empty. 
And so you get that basket, and what inevitably happens? That basket is left there because it doesn't work right. Somebody has abandoned that cart. And so you start pushing it, and it's got that loud wheel. And this one did. It was very loud, and it pulls to the left. And the more you're going on, the more you realize people are just looking at you. And they're looking at that wheel, and they're looking at you. And, and you're like, it's just a basket. It's, what's the big deal? And you're going through the milk section. There's like five people that are just stopping and staring at you. And I thought, you know, that's a little bit what it's like being a Christian. You know, you're pushing this basket that you're real excited about. You, you actually like this basket. And you know it comes with some, some hard things about it. And people are just staring at you and judging you and going, what are you doing with that basket? Especially in this modern age. You still need that cart? Now you're probably wishing I'd use the other illustration. But look, we're looking at the book of Revelation. And John says the point of the book of Revelation is to reveal, to make known, to disclose Jesus. But if there's a second thing it discloses and makes known, it's what? Judgment. That we live in a world of judgment. Not just baskets and people looking at you, but bumping into you and ramming you. See, it also unveils this growing darkness, a world under judgment. A world, as Murray said two weeks ago, where everything in creation and the cosmos is touched by judgment. And you feel that, don't you? That's the world in which we live. If you have not shed a tear this week, you've not stopped in your American busyness and your little life that you're clinging to. If you've not stopped in this past couple years and just wept a little bit because that basket just gets louder and louder and the darkness gets louder and louder of people looking and it's growing, this world under judgment. Ezekiel 26, I've read this passage recently, it's beautiful. I don't, you know, you get in those chapters where it's like judgment, judgment, judgment. And it's this section where it's talking about judgment on this particular region. And it's like judgment, more judgment, more judgment. And you're just like, oh, is this all there is is judgment. And then it says this, God says this, right in the midst of that judgment, he says but I will set my beauty in the land of the living. But I will set my beauty in the land of the living. Judgment, judgment, judgment. That's what Revelation is saying. We live in a world filled with judgment. And God says, I am going to take a people and I'm going to set them right in the midst of it, a people that are not under judgment. Now think about how that's going to work. You're just walking through the grocery store. You don't care about the will, but everybody else does. And it wears on you, doesn't it? 
See, we are looking at a group of churches. If you remember, in any interpretation of the book of Revelation that does not include the original churches it was written to is missing something. See, John was writing to small, insignificant churches who were facing real persecution, some outright persecution like Brian prayed about, prison, martyrdom. But mostly it was pressure to compromise to the big Roman world that was out there and touching everything or the worldliness of religion that can even touch the church. And just the mental, emotional, psychological, what my mother used to call the wear and tear. Right? That you suffer from it. Last week we saw John recommissioned. Recommissioned, which is really the mission of the church. And that is, in the midst of it, is God sets beauty in the land of the living that is under judgment that we are to bear witness and proclaim the gospel. Life without God's judgment over us. And that is the weapon that he gives us. There aren't two secret weapons. That was my mess up. There's really one. But what we see this week is that when you live as a person or a church not under God's judgment in a world full of judgment, you will be persecuted. That's what we're going to see today. And how does the church remain faithful and even flourish in the midst of persecution? In other words, when people are against you, what we're going to see today is that God is with you. He is with the church. And He and His name and the church will be vindicated at the end. I'm glad that Laurel read the entire passage because it once again takes us to the end of the matter. So three things this morning to get through this text, to work through it. The first is know the deal. Know what to expect. Know what you signed up for. Don't be surprised at what you're going to go through as the church. If we go back again to the first seven churches... John wrote this to the church in Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days, that was just a period of completeness, not literally ten days. For ten days, you will have persecution. John is saying, I want you, the church in Smyrna, to be prepared. In other words, be prepared prepared for suffering in the form of persecution. Physical, psychological, emotional, mental. Do not be surprised. Again, we have seen seven cycles two times and we have one more coming of judgment that is actually issuing from Jesus. From the one who is at the center and the lamb who is opening these scrolls and breaking these seals. And as a result, judgment is occurring in this world. Whether it is Russia invading, whether it is 2,000 years ago an invading army. Or whether it is the atrocities that are always happening in the world that aren't getting attention right now. 
He says this to us, you too will be persecuted. The church will be persecuted. We saw last week that John, part of the scroll, the message was sweet. It was tasty and yet it gave him a sour stomach because he was not just preaching about how God was going to bring many tribes and tongues and languages and kings together, but he was also preaching against things. And that's going to cause persecution. Look at verses 1 through 3. You have this picture of this temple that Ezekiel pointed to in the end of the book of Ezekiel. It is a spiritual temple. It is a place of God's dwelling. We'll look at this more in a second. But notice what he says right outside the temple. In this temple you have Jew and Gentile brought together. That is God's temple that Ephesians talks about. And right outside of that in what used to be the court of the Gentiles, they are trying to trample the holy city. You see the word he uses there. It's a transformed temple in a trampled city. Don't get all excited or caught up in the numbers. Simply the 1260 is 42 months. That means three and a half years. And what he's saying is this period of trampling is not going to go on forever. Seven again, complete, full. He's saying it's about half that time. But what you need to see is that there are people right outside the temple trying to trample it, trying to trample the city. And in verses 7 through 10, it gets worse. Look at your text. The beast here in verse 7 rises from the bottomless pit and he wants to have a tea party with the church. Right? No. In fact, he makes war on the church and conquers them and kills them, silences them, and then leaves their dead bodies out in the street. And, and what happens is they make merry over. It's like a Christmas party. They're bringing gifts and exchanging, and they don't even give the church a proper burial. And yet he says this is for a shorter time, three and a half days, much shorter Verse 9, the image depicts shame and indignities. Have you ever had a situation where someone just crushed your humanity? Said something about you, did something to you, and even rejoiced over it? What John is saying here by picturing this is to know the deal, to know what to expect, to not be surprised. Listen to how Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. Do not be surprised at the fiery trials you are enduring. Jesus said, if you were of the world, they would love you. People would just pat you on the back. You're one of us. He says, I've chosen you out of the world, and therefore they will hate you. John is reminding us, he is saying to us, don't be shocked when this happens. When I used to do college ministry, I had the privilege of doing lots of weddings, and with weddings came marriage counseling. 
And when I first started doing marriage counseling, you do like six or eight things, and then you realize they don't remember any of that. So what I tried to do is like pare it down into a couple things, really one thing that I would try to get across to this couple because they would come to me, you know, they were in love, everything was great, they were just walking like together, hand in hand, and they wouldn't say anything about each other that was negative. And they thought marriage was going to be the same way. And so what I would try to do, and this was from a friend of mine gave me this idea, I would try to get them to fight. Why did I want them to fight? Because I wanted them to see that marriage is going to have problems. You're going to see your sin. You're going to see problems in your marriage. You're going to see problems in yourself and problems in one another. Like, don't be shocked at that. So my main point was don't be surprised when it happens. Give me a call. So I would always ask this question. Where are you going to spend your first Christmas? And the girl was like, oh, we're going to my parents, of course. And the guy was like, uh, I'm not sure my mom's going to like that. I'm like, that's a lot right there. John is telling us, look, whether it's an invading army, whether it is a su Supreme Court ruling or rulings, whether it's jail time for your pastor, uh, whether you lose your lovely building, whether you don't get a promotion at work because you sign that you're a Christian, uh, maybe you don't get a scholarship because you sign that you're religious and then you had to fill in the dot what kind of religion. And, and what I'm getting, I'm not trying to scare anybody. What I'm trying to do is like, we need to be prepared for this. It's coming. Some of it's here. And it's certainly here around the world. And we Americans have to admit, sometimes we love our comfort more than God. And our comfort lies outside of this world. It also means this. And this, for you peacemakers and for you people that just want to get along, this means someone is going to hate you. Someone is going to revile you. Secondly, this is why the second point is so important. We need to know who we are. Verses 1 through 6. When you are persecuted, when you're rejected, when you're in the grocery store and people are staring at you and your, your creaky will... When you have this low-grade pressure to conform and, 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 and you're rejected when you don't. When you're left out or treated as insignificant or unworthy or like you don't fit. Again, that begins to, that begins to wear on you. The wear and tear emotionally and psychologically. Is this really true? Should I really, is this really worth it? Um, things are hard already. And becoming a Christian, it seems to get harder. And John, John is giving us this picture. Jesus is giving this picture to John of the church, of the people of God. And the first thing he says about us from verse 1 is that you are measured. You see this? If you read the Old Testament, and occasionally this will come up where somebody grabs a measuring tool and starts measuring things, right? It may be the city. Uh, in Ezekiel, it's the temple. In fact, the word 
where this temple, this spiritual temple that we see here as the people of God is forecasted in Ezekiel, the word measure is used 30 times. I actually went back myself and I got 26 and then I read commentators and they said 30. I was like, I can't add. But what it's saying is this. What does it mean to be measured? Well, it simply means someone's taken dimensions. If you were to measure this building, you would take a measuring rod and go down. Well, we'd use something other than a measuring rod. But it's taking your dimensions. But it's more than that. We were walking, uh, taking a walk the other day, and there were these two ladies outside this new house being built, and they had this spray can, and they were this orange spray paint. I said, well, how's it going? Is the house about done? They said, we don't know. We're the, we're the landscape architects. We're measuring the plots. What they were doing was they were, with some kind of care and thought and planning, they were artistically shaping and setting apart this plot of ground. You see what he's saying? You have a landscaper, you have an architect, you have an artist, you have a loving, beautiful God who is intimately and intricately involved in your life. Listen to Psalm 139 for a second. Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Do you see what he's saying? God has intricately formed you as a human being, but even more so, he's intricately formed and measured and intimately known the church. Why is that important? Because if you are treated as insignificant, you're not important. No one cares about you. No one gives careful attention to you. That wears on you. And what God is saying is that I have that much careful, intricate planning and attention to you, the church. But he also says, verse 4, that we're measured and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. This comes out of the book of Zechariah. You have these two olive trees and these two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What this picture is, again, that these lampstands, if you go back to chapter 1, they, they're the churches. The lampstands represent the churches. And Jesus is walking amidst those lampstands. Well, where do the lampstands get their fuel? They get them from olive oil. Where do they get their juice? They get it from olive oil. And what God is demonstrating here, and if you go through Old Testament, what you'll see is that oil represents God's spirit. In other words, when you feel powerless and insignificant, God is actually filling you with his Holy Spirit. Think about it this way. We're going to see in Revelation chapter 13 that though we like to say sticks and stones may break our bones, but words never hurt me, words do hurt. In chapter 13, the beast uh, 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 says blasphemous words about God and about you, the church. He says lies about you. 
He says, you really don't belong to God. You're really not measured. You really aren't that important. You really are insignificant. And that, again, can wear on you. But what does Romans 8 say about the Holy Spirit? That God, that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in the church and each one of you individually to do what? Lots of things. We could do a whole series on that. But one of the main things the Holy Spirit is given to you for is exactly what these two lampstands are doing, bearing witness to the light. It's still running. The juice is still flowing. And this is where it's flowing. Bearing witness, the Holy Spirit is, to Jesus' love for you, the church. You feel like sometimes, well, I probably don't belong to God. Did you hear what I said God knows what I'm thinking. There's two ways to read Psalm 139. One is God's looking over your shoulder everywhere you go. The second is God is with you everywhere you go and loves you everywhere you go. Intricately and intimately. Even, he says, when you go to Sheol or the depths of darkness. If you struggle with depression and despair and you go to the depths... Has God abandoned you? No! The God of the Bible is actually with you because He experienced that on the cross. He intimately knows you and assures you that you still belong to Him. Real quickly, a little application here. Two witnesses. If you don't have at least one other Christian in your life helping you along, encouraging you, spurring you on, you will run out of oil. Maybe not theologically, but I'm telling you, you will run on fumes. There is no such thing as an individual solo Christian in the Bible. They always were sent two by two, bearing witness together. Real quickly, what else does he say? They're measured, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, the second part, they stand before the Lord. The church stands before the Lord. Again, this is a, we've seen this before, that the church, this temple of God, is as close to God as we can possibly be. We need to see that. Because sin separates, doesn't it? And as a Christian, you begin to think, well, my sin must separate me from God. And John is saying, look... Uh, this is what I want you to always see, that you cannot get any closer to God. That your sin separated Jesus from God so that you could be brought near to Him. You have perfect standing with God. Do you see that? You are before the Lord of the earth. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what's the problem with that? There are people, not just in the world, but in the church, that don't believe that. And they are trying to get their standing with God based on what they're doing. And they will persecute Christ. Galatians 5, Paul is preaching about this beautiful freedom that we have in the gospel, that it's Jesus plus nothing. And there's always a group in the church saying, no, 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 but it's plus circumcision. You still got to be circumcised. I'm so glad we're done away with that one. But we'll come up with other things, won't we? Jesus plus 
You just fill in the blank. Paul says, look, why am I being persecuted? If we believe the same gospel, why are you persecuting me? Because people under judgment and don't know they're standing with God are going to force that upon you. And verse 5 says it's going to feel like fire to them. Verse 10 says it's actually going to torment them. And you know what this means. You don't even need other people because you still have sinful flesh inside of you that every time the Holy Spirit says this true, something else is barking. That can't be true. That can't be true. Right? It's like that little, well, I won't get into all that. It's another illustration too long. But you know what I'm saying. It's easier to preach the law to yourself than grace. Do you realize that? It just is. And it's in a world that is under judgment, being a church that's not under judgment, it will grate on that. Verse 6, he also says that that gospel, that standing, that spirit, that measuredness brings power. You probably know who he's referring to there, Moses and Elijah. Uh, one with the waters turning into blood, one with no raining rain falling. The two pillars of prophecy in the Old Testament. You know what he says about the church here? That you and I, that we have that same prophetic power. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We have that same prophetic power that maybe... Like I got here, we had a, a meeting with uh, ZCP staff and some other things this week to talk about how Redeemer can really love this ministry and, and make this a part of our ministry. And one of the things that I was convicted of is I need to, need to be more present. And so I, I drove up one morning and I, and I realized there was a parent walking in the front door and I was like, I'm not going in the back door today. I'm going to go meet that parent. And that parent wasn't real happy to see me and uh, tried to talk to that parent. And I came in and I said, Hannah, hey, I talked to a parent this morning, making progress. She said, great, do you know who you talked to? He's not real happy. It's interesting that you should talk to him. Well, I said, I'm going to put him on the prayer board and start praying for him. Why? Because I believe God is powerful. Not me. I probably messed it up. But God may use that weakness to show his strength. Finally, he says that you're the presence of God. And that's really what all of this is imaging. The temple is where God dwelt. It's God's presence in the world. It's God setting beauty in the earth through the church. You and I are indeed the temple of the living God. What that means is this. We see at the end of the book in Revelation 21 and 22, this, this new temple realized, so to speak. And this is what it says in a nutshell. Commentators said it like this, the future temple pictures the infallible, perfect, pure, holy presence of God dwelling forever in a purified community. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? But do you see what we see here? That God's infallible, perfect, pure, holy presence dwells where? In an impurified community. Hallelujah. You see that? God's perfect presence is dwelling in you, the church, and infallible people. Not infallible, excuse me. A fallible people. 
an imperfect people. And that's going to grate on people. Because there are people that think that can't happen. And let me, let me be real specific here. You've got friends in the past few years who have left the church. They were Christians. They were professing believers. And they've left the church. All of us have those people. Why have they ultimately left the church? Because they don't think this is true. They don't think a perfect, infallible God can dwell with a fallible, imperfect people. Well, the church has done this. The church hasn't done this. Yes, the church is infallible. Or, excuse me, I keep saying that. It's fallible. Thankfully, we can edit this recording. My wife loves candles. There are candles everywhere in our house all the time burning. I'll come home and there's candles burning. <laughs> Every room, there's a candle burning. And what, what this text is saying to us, there's always going to be a candle burning. God is indeed lighting up his lampstands. God is showing forth his presence of a people not under judgment and a world full of judgment. Finally, he says this. Know the deal, don't be surprised. Know who you are in the midst of this world under judgment. And thirdly, know your future, verses 11 through 13. Look at verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet. This, this, this church was left for dead, right? And what happens? The Spirit enters them. The breath of life from God. This is probably a reference to Ezekiel 37. They stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw him. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. What is happening here? Basically, what's happening here is that persecution may seem to go on and on and on. But actually, he says, it lasts about three and a half days. You're like, well, no, it doesn't. Not literally. Exactly. Not literally. But compared, compared to things, God is saying... When you get to the end, you will look back and it will be a light and momentary affliction. It will end. It has an end point. It will not go on forever. The church will not be silenced forever. The church will not be left for dead in the street. The church will not suffer all of these things forever. He says, come up here. And, and this whole cloud, this is a little confusing but what probably is happening here, this does not mean there's going to be this rapture, okay? Some of you were taught this where, where some people are going to be raptured and everybody else is going to be left here to, to just endure this great tribulation. That's not what he's saying. What he's probably saying is this is a picture of Jesus' return that Paul says he comes with the clouds, right? In chapter 1 he says the same thing. He comes with the clouds, sort of the, the return of the king. And that God's people are going to be lifted up to meet him. Is that going to be physical, literal? I don't know. But we're going to be with him. And then he's going to bring in the final judgment. And he's going to renew all things. 
including your body, including this earth. We'll talk more about that later. So this great earthquake probably means what all great earthquakes in the, the, the Bible mean, final judgment, the real things coming. And then you have this reaction in verse 13. And I admit this is the most confusing verse in the passage. It either means one of two things. It either means that people will see what happens to God's people. And they will even see that forecasted as they hear it right now. There may be a non-Christian here hearing this right now or seeing Christians persecuted and the way that they set beauty in the land of the living, the way they bear witness to the king in the midst of that persecution, and the result of that may be that they respond by fearing the Lord. People may be converted when you are persecuted, or you just simply live a life patterned after the cross of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection, usually a thousand deaths and resurrection to our daily lives, that people will see that and they will give glory to God. But probably what he's saying is this, what he says in chapter 1, verse 7, every knee will bow. God's people will be vindicated. God's glory will be vindicated. And part of that is those who have made a, as, as the Old Testament says, invoke terror on the land, will be given over to a life of judgment, an eternity of judgment. What is the takeaway for us? The takeaway for us is it's hard to live in a world under judgment. We will be persecuted. But think for just a minute about Jesus. Jesus came from an eternity of no judgment, perfect loving union and communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he leaves that perfect place and enters a world under judgment and he is truly beauty set in the land of judgment. And what does he do? He is measured intricately, made and loved by His Father. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He has power that some people were wooed by that and some people were threatened by that. And over time, what happened? That loving presence of God grated on people so much that He was indeed persecuted. But who was over that? Who was putting him on that cross ultimately, judging him so that, that he would be the center of God's judgment. And through his resurrection, he would be vindicated and that you and I can be united to him. For the joy set before him, Jesus knew what was coming, didn't he? He knew the deal. And he knew who he was. But he looked way down that road to what was coming. His future resurrection and vindication and yours. 
Brian mentioned, and I'll close with this, you've heard and probably seen so many reports of missionaries in the Ukraine. And what are they doing? They're not running for their lives. Some of them may have to leave for good reasons, but they're not running in panic and fear, and we've got to get out of here as fast as we can, this world of judgment. What are they often doing? They are staying put the best they can and offering beauty in the midst of judgment to all who will come. That's the dwelling of God in a world under judgment. Let's pray. God, what looks like a confusing picture at first in this text is really simple. You are setting beauty in a land of judgment. You are filling us with your love. You have us right there beside you, giving us your spirit and assurance, intricately and intimately known by you. Even suffering persecution, Lord, we pray that others would see. They would see not just, they would not just hear what we say, but they would see how we respond and they would be drawn to the King who is at the center. In His name we pray. Amen.